0: Okay, friends, the story begins. We are journeying through the Siddur. We're on the middle of page 67. Um, bottom of 67, whatever it is, the second paragraph there. And we're wrapping up for the end of the service of Shachris, of the morning. Uvalet Zion, right? This long prayer it goes all the way from 67 to the bottom of 68, and what we hope to explore today is why. Why are we saying this, man? <laughs> it's a long, it's wordy. You may have noticed there's a lot of Aramaic in it as well. What is the theme here? How is this getting us toward our goal? So I b- before we dive into this prayer, I think it's just important to reorient ourselves for a moment. The premise of our discussions is that there's a very uh, specific focus in what davening is. Davening is essentially unpacking moda'ani. Praying means I'd like to connect more to the soul. I want to make the soul and God more relevant to my life. Right, The moda'ani is the essence of that. The moda'ani is the soul's essential I concede that God is real. I don't know if I feel it yet. I don't know if I believe it yet. I don't know if I get it yet, but I'm going to concede. And slowly throughout the process of prayer, we unpack that idea. We unpack the soul and make it more emotionally and conceptually relevant. And every stage in davening in the sitter is getting us closer to that goal. Whether it's the verses of praise, where we're just appreciating what God does as a creator. The blessings that precede the Shema, appreciating how the angels praise God. The Shema itself, appreciating that God is one and developing a love and reverence for God. The Amida, total bital total transparency with God, total dependence on God. Tachnun, which is total vulnerability with God. And then finally, we're winding down. We got to the Asher, which is channeling Right now, we're actually channeling that into our into our everyday lives. And then last year, last week, chapter twenty from Psalm that we recited in the top of sixty seven, which talked about how we get our strength and resilience as Jewish people. And now the Uvalation prayer. Right, what is the role of this prayer? This prayer, again, there's a lot going on here. But it's a composition. There are several running themes here. There is various verses from the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, describing Kedusha. You know the Kedusha we recite, how the angels praise God, right? based on the prophecies of Isaiah and Yechezkel, Ezekiel. There is verses from the Kedusha. There is the Aramaic translation of those verses. There's verses discussing the value of Torah study and actually a prayer at the end for asking God to bless us to be proficient in Torah study. And there's also verses from the Tanakh that describe the redemption, that pray and hope for the redemption, the final redemption. That's pretty much the running theme of this big composite of various verses and prayers. Why? Why? There are. Um. The truth is, uh, as I was preparing for this this morning, there was actually a lot of discussion as to why it's not that simple. And amongst the commentaries on the Talmud, there's like four different opinions. So, just just to to put things in historical context, this is actually pre- a pretty old prayer. It's not. It's not like some say it dates back to the prophets themselves where the later prophets established reciting this. It's quoted in the Talmud. It's even cited in the Zohar, which is around the age of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, who was a student of Rabbi Akiva, just to give historical context. Right. They were alive during the second Beta Mikdash. So it, it's at least that old. And among the commentaries describing the various reasons of why this prayer is important and how it's it's instrumental in the in the role of prayers, the role of davening. One of the commentaries explain that there's a there's an interesting Talmudic passage, and I paraphrase: the Talmud says that from the day the Beit Hamikdash, the Holy Temple, was destroyed, not a day goes by where there's an increase of curses on the Jewish people. The Beit HaMikdash temple was that house where we would experience God. Just, just, um, Our first experience of God was at Sinai, right? And how did that go? Not very well. It was an out-of-body experience. God had to revive us. We said to Moses, you know, why don't you just tell us the commandments and you'll communicate for God because we can't handle this and even then the inspiration we got from that only lasted a couple of weeks we then sinned with the golden cap it just wasn't working so God says I'm going to do something different you'll build a temple I'll reside in that temple and you'll come to me when you're ready we have this temple and ultimately that gained permanent residence in Jerusalem we have this temple where we can come to God where we can experience God and if we can get that full experience, what we're also going to get is peace. And uh, that that wasn't so much the case during the second Beit There Certainly was during the first. Who built the first temple, by the way? Solomon. Solomon was in reign during the first temple. Shlomo. You know what the word Shlomo means? It comes from the word Shalom, peace. And our, our your name has very much to do with your life mission. He was Shlomo because he literally brought peace to the world by building that Beit to make this, by building that home, by building that temple. As Jews, we know that our sense of security doesn't come from our militant success. Certainly doesn't come from numbers. <laughs> I mean, just historically, what has kept us going? What has kept us alive as Jews? our connection to God. And that was through the Beit Mikdash. As soon as that had been destroyed, life changed. And exile got progressively dark. Not just from generation to generation, but even on a daily basis, that's what the Talmud says. So then the Talmud says, well, wait a minute. What is keeping the world alive? If it's really that bad. How are we still here to tell the tale? You know what the Talmud answers? There's a specific prayer that keeps us going. And it's this prayer. On page 67. Middle of page 67. The Uvalat prayer. That's what the Talmud says. How does this prayer keep us going? So one of the um, commentaries explain that what was the shift that happened with the destruction of the temple that led to curses It wasn't that God was punishing us. you know the temple's destroyed because you're a bunch of sinners now I'm gonna start throwing lightning bolts at you. <laughs> um the curses that we were that that the world is um, enduring is not a punishment but more of a consequence of that lack of connection. And in, in, in the words of this commentary, the gates, the various heavenly gates, including the gate of prayer, had been closed. It was very easy to pray in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. There was no structure, structured prayer. Organized religion. <laughs> you just go to God and talk. When during exile, we need a specific structure because we have less clarity. But the gates of prayer were wide open during the time of the Beit HaMikdash. As soon as that had closed, the Beit HaMikdash had been destroyed, the, the gates of prayer had been closed. And we need this structure of prayer. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. We don't have that same inspiration. The Talmud says that even though the gates of prayer had been closed, Sha'arei DeMaot. Lona'alu, the gates of tears never close. There's a great song by Avram Fried. Mike, you know the song? Sharedamuotlonalu, sharedamuotlonalu, the gates of tears never close. Right by Avram Fried. It's a beautiful song. The gates of tears never close. The gates of teshuva never close. This is an exile prayer. <laughs> it exists because of exile. It wasn't necessary prior to exile. But now that we're in exile, we have to realize that our prayer, our lifeline needs to be in the spirit of Teshuva if it's going to be successful. What does Teshuvah mean? Right, return. Um, teshuvah is literally, you turn around. That's what Teshuvah means. You know, the Talmud says something fascinating, a little bit of a tangent here, but I think this is important. When one gets in halacha or in, in really any transactional context, you can make stipulations. And if those stipulations aren't met, the transaction is void right? And the same applies for a marriage. We're one to make certain stipulations, conditions to their marriage. And those conditions weren't met. The marriage is retroactively undone. I'm not saying one should make stipulations, (laughs) but this is theoretical. So we're one to say, I'm marrying so-and-so on condition that I'm wealthy. I'm not saying one should do this, right? Turns out they're not wealthy. There's no marriage. They are wealthy. There is a marriage, right? What happens if somebody says, I'm marrying so-and-so in condition that I'm a righteous person? So marriage or no marriage? So the Talmud says, even if they're the most wicked of people or they have been known to be the most wicked of people, the marriage is valid we presume that they must have had a thought of doing teshuva. And that's all it takes, that one thought, that one decision to turn around. It's all it takes. They're standing under that chuppah and the marriage is valid because they thought of doing teshuva. And with that attitude, that decision, I'm turning around because I want to connect to God, nothing can get in the way. Take a look at the prayer on 67. We'll read the first couple of lines. And a redeemer shall come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their transgressions, says the Lord. We're talking about redemption from Z- to Zion. This is post Hamikdash. The Hamikdash has been destroyed. We've been exiled from our land. And we want redemption. Redemption for those who do teshuva. And although... Again, our prayer might be limited while in exile, but in the spirit of teshuva, we can always return. We also talk about the covenant of Torah study. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. What is the covenant of God? My spirit which is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your children nor from the mouth of your children's children declares the Lord from now to eternity. This is from Isaiah. What's that referring to? The Torah. We have a covenant with God. You know what a covenant means? A deal. A... How would you describe a covenant? A covenant means a a what? Agreement. An agreement. But it's more than just like a stipulation or like a contractual thing. It's a marriage is like a covenant. A bond. Right, a bond. There we go. A marriage is like a covenant. A marriage is a bond. A marriage means I'm dedicating myself to you and no one else whether I like you or not, and I'm going to try my best to like you. It's not dependent on, That it sounds a little extreme, but it's not dependent on feelings. It's something bigger that's bonding us. And what is that bigger thing that is bonding us with God? Is values, the Torah. We want to open those gates. If we want redemption, if we want to survive and even thrive through exile, we tap into that covenant. We tap into Torah study. In Rashi's commentary on this Talmud that we've referenced, Rashi points out something interesting. The context for why this was established, this prayer was established. So again, pre or during the Beit HaMikdash, prayer was very informal. Infor- um, right now, Judaism is heavily focused on prayer. The schedule of a Jew, the lifestyle of a Jew centers around the time that you daven, go on a shul, coming together, congregating. But during the Beit HaMikdash, prayer was almost secondary. It's just another six hundred one one of the 613 mitzvahs. And the focus was actually the korbanot, the sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash. And prayer was a very individual thing. It wasn't necessarily the idea of a minyan. It was a very individual, personal thing. And that changed with the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. With the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, our sensitivity to pray to God um, had become diminished. Maimonides says, on a very technical level, there was a linguistic issue. We've been exiled to Babylon and don't know Hebrew and don't have the language to pray. But the mystics say it's also more of a spiritual thing. We're simply just less sensitive and it's not going to happen if we don't have a structure. And that's when Shul, was established the idea of congregating together and you know it also came with the pain of exile and another reason for the the necessity to establish structured prayer gotta work for a living (laughs) we're now exiled we're not in our own land we gotta work for foreign companies and be with people that don't share values with us and we gotta be out there in the world more than we should be judaism was designed initially to be insular we're all supposed to be living together in Jerusalem. This was God's promise to Abraham. And the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash ruined that. Judaism is no longer insular. You've Jews all over the place. So now we need synagogues. We need mini temples. Mini Beit HaMikdash M- to glue us together. But again, how long is our prayer service? Especially in the morning, not on Shabbos. Especially if it's a worker's minion, right? I knew it. there's a minion in LA where um, the minion starts at 30. 7 a.m., the uh, meter police come and start giving tickets. <laughs> so the minion has to be over 6.59. <laughs> People have to get to work. So the sages said, well, wait a minute. There's this structured prayer, but how do you carry that into your day? So people would sit down and study Torah after prayer. Channel that energy of prayer into something meaningful. Into understanding God's value system. And it got to a point where the sages created a structured study program for those who can't stick around too long. And that's actually what this Uval Tzion prayer is. That's what Rashi says. The mechanism to sit down and structurally study Torah. Well, we already recited verses from the from the five books of Moses, from the Shema and various verses. Let's now recite verses from the Tanakh, from from, from the prophets, quoting Isaiah as we just did, quoting Ezekiel describing the kedusha, describing how the angels praise God as well as their Aramaic translations. so other so so the layman at the time who spoke Aramaic could understand this. But again, this is also an exile mentality, an exile necessity. In, in other words, the ultimate theme of this prayer, Is the recognition that we're in exile, we're away from our land, we're isolated from our people, we're spiritually not, we're not in the spiritual environment we once were, and we're pining to connect, reconnect to truth, despite all that, that keeps the world going. We're pining for the redemption. And we know our lifeline toward that is, uh, our path toward that is teshuva and Torah study. That's our covenant with God. That was our marriage with God. Is the Torah. And the, the Torah study post-prayer is actually the segue or the bridge between the inspiration of prayer bringing that into our everyday normal lives. Understanding what our values are. And if we don't bring it into our everyday life if it's not relevant to us as human beings in exile God is still meaningful and relevant, even while in exile, right? That's why we're reciting this prayer. This is an exile prayer. Then we've missed the point. Totally missed the point. You you may have heard me say this story before, but there was a, a chassid of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak So going back over a century ago, named Rabbi Gershon Bear. Rabbi Gershon was a big scholar, and he used to, he had a habit of translating his prayer into Yiddish, He would recite the words in Hebrew and translate it into Yiddish. And he asked his rabbi, is this considered an inappropriate interruption? There's parts of Daviding where we're not supposed to interrupt superfluously. He said, Rabbi Gershon, I don't understand. You know Hebrew. Why would you need to translate it into Yiddish? So he says, I know Hebrew, but my animal soul knows Yiddish. Right? How do I make this more relevant to me? How do I take the spiritual things we're talking about and channel it into my everyday life. Even while in exile. This prayer is essentially a way of saying. That despite exile. God we're not given up. Which is similar to the Kaddish as well by the way. Despite exile we're not given up. We still believe. We're still connected. Our lifeline is still Torah. We can even recognize to some degree. How the angels praise God. So I'll tell you a story. Uh, before I tell you the story, take a look on... Uh, in the Hebrew. In the English, sorry. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight lines from the top. And and the angels call to one another. Hold on, that's not where I was. Hold on, I'm lost. Sorry, right before that... Um, The line above that where it says, and you, the, you, holy one. You're you see it? 68 or 69. Sorry, 67. I apologize. 67. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight. Yeah. Eight lines from the paragraph that we're on right at the middle of the page. And you, holy one. Do you see it? And you, holy one, are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Okay. I'm going to scroll to the Hebrew because... I'd like to translate this a little bit more simply. It's the fourth line from the top from the top there, from the middle of the page. It's the end of the line where it says ve'ata. Do you see it? Ve'ata. And you, Kadosh, are holy, referring to God. Yoshev. Anybody know what Yoshev means? You sit or you reside. You're enthroned, right? That's how they translated it. Tehilo at Yisrael with the praises of Israel. Okay, I'll get back to that verse in a second, but here's the story. The Baal Shem Tov, Um the Baal Shem Tov was it, it, it sounds funny saying one of the most influential rabbis. It sounds cliche. But he literally shifted. Judaism, to where it should have been. I don't want to say, God forbid, reform Judaism or change Judaism. That's not what the Hasidic movement came to do. It came literally just to shift Judaism to what it used to be. Judaism was getting to be so technical. And so. um, Checklist like. Like. Did I do this mitzvah? Did I do that mitzvah? Did I daven at this time? How much Torah do you know? The spirit of it was dying. And there's historical reasons why the spirit of it was dying. But the basic answer was exile. As exile progresses, the spirit dies. And we're left with a lot of mitzvahs. And it's, oh, this is heavy. So the Baal Shem Tov came to wake up Jews and not to God forbid neglect the 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 practice of Judaism and focus on the spirit but that the spirit should give vitality to the practice of Judaism so the bashamta would go around inspiring jews reminding them that you as a jew are valuable because of your soul not just because of what you do but because of who you are might reinvigorate the soul now, the Baal Shem Tov was not always well known as the Baal Shem Tov. It Wasn't like he was this well-renowned person and He was actually lived a very private life at the beginning. And had a very um discreet identity. And he would go around trying to inspire people, but kind of incognito. People didn't really know who he was. And one of the things the Baal Shem Tov would do to inspire people. And and to basically allow God into this world. <laughs> Not at the expense of religion, but with through religion. He would ask people, hey, what's up? That's in my 2023 lingo, right? In whatever language he would say it in. Right, what's going on? How are you? Trying to pull out of them a Baruch Hashem, a thank God. Trying to awaken that within them. That was a big part of his role. So simple. Can you imagine a Chabad rabbi opening a Chabad house? So, what programs are you doing? Well, we're doing a Baruch Hashem program. I'm asking people how their day is, and they're going to answer Baruch Hashem, right? <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to do that from a fundraising perspective. where right? You got to have a little bit more. You got to have like Magilla and martinis or something. You know what I mean? Um. But the Baal Shem Tov saw the value in that. He saw the value in that. The Baal Shem Tov walks into this shul. And there is an elderly Jew there. A scholar. A sage. A very holy person. And I mean holy in the literal sense of the word. Very different. <laughs> this is a man who had not left this synagogue for 50 years. He would wear his to fill in tefillin every single day. He would wake up in the morning... And wearing his tallest tefillin the whole day, not eating until the evening, would just sit there studying Torah. So imagine an old saintly person wearing his tallest tefillin, sitting in shul, studying Torah, and engrossed in the most deep mystical um, worlds, just studying uninterrupted for fifty years. Bashemtov pops in, and again, this guy doesn't know who the Bashemtov is because the Bashemtov wasn't known. He looked like a regular, you know, Ukrainian schlepper of the time, seventeen hundreds, and he says, "Nuvas machsteyid, how are you doing?" The guy ignores the bashemta. Who is this guy trying to interrupt what I've been working on for fifty years? This holy connection, out-of-world experience. Again, the guy was barely eating. Oh, excuse me, how are you doing? The is trying to pull out a baruch hashem from him. The guy is just trying to nudge him away. The Tov tries it again. Reb Yid, how are you doing? Finally, the Tov has the audacity—I say that facetiously, almost—to say to the guy, "What right do you have to deny God of His sustenance?" Then the guy got like. Perked up. Offended. Deny God of his sustenance. You think God needs us human beings. To sustain him. That's turning us into God. The Bashem Tov. Stuck his ground. You're denying God of his sustenance. Huh? God's life. What God lives for. Or what God created the world for was a space that seems void of him. And that he should inhabit that space. Right, A world that seems totally empty of God. That seems totally independent from God. And we should reveal that God is so present here. And you're taking that away from God. And the Baal Shem Tov quoted this verse that we're reading over here. Fourth line in the Hebrew. End of the, I'll read it again and translate it. End of the line. Where it's by the period where it says Va'ata, do you see it? Va'ata Kadosh, you are holy, Yoshev. You reside, you dwell. How do you dwell? To Yisrael. Israel through the praises of Israel. God, you dwell here through our praises. It's not that God needs us to praise him. Like, you know, he has a good self-esteem. Um, but our praises. Our prayers bring him into this world, and he was in this world during the time of the Beit Hamikdash. We're bringing him back because the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed. We have an mission to bring him back to this world, and dark the, the exile is getting darker and darker and darker. And he says, "Rabbi, you're denying God of His sustenance by sitting there and not making Judaism relevant to the world." Rather escaping the world so you could just hide behind Judaism. Hide behind spirituality. He says, bro, you're missing the point. You know what Judaism is? After we were totally spiritually engrossed and recognizing spiritually um, my vocabulary is running short today. (laughs) spiritually invested. There's another word I'm looking for. I got this stuff instead of Diet Coke, so that's why. After we've been totally absorbed in recognizing God as our creator, that's the verses of praise. Recognizing and internalizing how the angels praise God, giving great context to how great He is, the blessings that precede the Shema. The Shema, realizing that He's one and relevant and falling in love and developing reverence for Him. The Amida, total Bittal, bowing down and saying you to God, uh, Baruch Atah. The Tachnun, vulnerability. With God. After we went into all these levels, we now bring God back into our world as we're rounding up with prayer. With this redemption prayer. That was created during exile. That's reminding us. Make God relevant. Make prayer relevant to our daily life. Outside of the synagogue. Make God relevant outside of heaven. Okay, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it.